This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Okay, it's my privilege to welcome everyone for the last colloquium of this term. Uh, we're hard at work planning next term's events, and I've started to work with some of you around the room who made suggestions on, on things, uh, but it looks like it'll be a really rich schedule in the spring. Tonight's event is uh, something of a homecoming. Tina Klein uh, was, has, was part of the CMS faculty for a number of its early years and made really significant contributions to this program's focus on globalization. And I had the great privilege of teaching the film experience with her uh, some years ago and learning a great deal from her. She's got a background in American studies and as well as film, and she teaches now in, at, over at Boston College. Uh, her, her first book called War Orientalism, Asia and the, and the um, um, Middle Brow Imagination is a book that sort of explores film, the popular musical, the best-selling novel as a way into understanding the relations between Asia and the United States in particular uh, during the Cold War period. <laughs> She's since done some really cutting-edge work on global media culture, including a great piece in Cinema Journal on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon uh, that uh, I, I learned, I, I, I constantly reference in my writing uh, as a way of understanding the hybrid nature of contemporary film production. So today she's going to talk to us about some of her current work that I'm sure will be relevant to many of you around this room who are doing thesis topics on or thinking about doing thesis topics on globalization. So take it away. Thank you very much, Henry. Um, it's very nice to be back. I'm thrilled to have been invited. Um, uh, well, what I want to talk about today is a movie called Tech on Kincrete. Um, and what drew my attention to this film is the fact that it's the first feature-length Japanese anime to be directed by a non-Japanese person. Uh, it's the debut film of an American director named Michael Arias. And the script, uh, which was based on a Japanese manga, was also written by an American um, named Anthony Weintraub. And this talk is very much a work in progress. Um, I'm in the midst of writing about the film now. Um, I don't feel that I have a complete handle on it. I certainly haven't pulled all my ideas together in a nice, neat, coherent reading. So it is very much uh, kind of up in the air in that sense. And I've also not fully worked out the relationship between Tekon and anime more generally, uh, what's going on in the anime industry today. Um, I'm not a huge anime fan, so I don't come in with a big background knowledge about anime. And I haven't read all the anime scholarship yet, and in fact, I'm waiting for Ian's book and once Ian's book comes out, then I will know everything that I need to know, and then my reading of Tekon will fall into place. So, Ian, hurry up. <coughs> um, <coughs> what I have done is interviews with both Michael Arias and Anthony Weintraub, so much of what follows comes out of my conversation with them. Um, I'm interested in Tekon as an instance of transnational cinema, uh, which is the topic of the book that I'm working on now. So I want to just say a little bit about this project so you have a, a kind of a context for my reading of the film. Uh, in the project, I'm exploring how globalization is reshaping commercial uh, film cultures and film industries in East Asia and in the U.S. 
Um, and I'm arguing in the book that film industries on both sides of the Pacific are becoming more closely integrated with each other, more tied up with each other uh, than they ever have been before. And I'm thinking about that both in material ties between among industries and also aesthetically uh, in terms of sort of uh, visual and narrative conventions. Um, I think that film industries in the U.S. and Asia are both becoming more transnational in nature rather than national, uh, by which I mean that they have substantial ties across national borders with other industries. Uh, <coughs> the book is really about trying to get a handle on this idea of transnational cinema, trying to define that concept with some precision, and uh, trying to lay out some of the many, many different forms that transnational cinema takes. And it seems that every day um, there's a new film that comes out that has a new kind of a transnational twist on it, which makes me think I may never finish this book because I'll keep having to account for new films and new changes that are, that are happening. Um, the conceptual underpinnings of the project are rooted in Arjuna Pottery's notion of global flows, so that I'm looking at how individual films and individual directors' bodies of works are really shaped by transnational or sort of transpacific flows, I should say, of people, of capital, of ideas, of, of technology, and so on. Uh, and each chapter in the project uh, looks at one kind of a flow and then one or two typically uh, films that uh, kind of embody that, that flow <coughs> or, or how that, that, those, that particular flow shapes that film. So I'm looking at transnational flows of labor is one, is one chapter, looking at how uh, Hollywood is relying on Asian labor pools increasingly to make its films um, in all kinds of different ways. I'm looking at diaspora and transnational flows of people, um, and I take up in the article that Henry mentioned, looking at Ang Lee as a member of the Chinese diaspora and thinking about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon as a kind of work of diasporic cinema, as a, as a symbolic return to a lost homeland. Uh, I have a chapter on transnational flows of capital in which I look at Hollywood local language productions. And these are international co-productions between a Hollywood studio uh, and, a, and an Asian production company. Um, <coughs> and these are films like Kung Fu Hustle, Stephen Chow's Kung Fu Hustle. Um, and basically what the studio does is finances and produces an Asian language film that's aimed at an Asian market. So this chapter is really looking at how Hollywood has gone into the business of making Chinese films and Japanese films. Um, and it's something that's happening all over the world, not just in Asia. Uh, and then I also have a chapter on transnational flows of genres that looks at uh, Korean cinema, in particular the Korean director Bong Joon-ho, um, and looks at how he uh, appropriates and localizes certain Hollywood genres to grapple with very Korean issues of Korean history or uh, Korean politics or U.S.-Korean relations, um, and so that how Hollywood genres become a kind of tool for him to do that. <coughs> One of the things that um, I want to do in the project is really to ask to what extent the national is still a useful category of analysis when we're talking about uh, contemporary cinema. And I think that in a lot of ways, that familiar category of national cinemas has become outmoded. Um, films today are made with the involvement of so many different film industries. They draw on so many different film styles and bodies of uh, conventions. Um, they're aimed at so many different markets. They have so many different kinds of people working on them that it becomes very hard to identify uh, any given film 
in any kind of simple, exclusive way and say, oh, that's just, that's clearly a Chinese film, or this is obviously an American an, a film, an exclusively an American film. And those kind of clear national um, identities become harder and harder to make. What I had discovered, however, um, is that many of these tra in many of these transnational films, the idea of the national, the category of the national, is still incredibly important. It, it has not at all disappeared. So that a lot of these films are engaging with issues of national history, or they um, are kind of updating national <laughs> cultural traditions, or they're looking back to their own national film industry histories in terms of genres and styles that, that were made within that film industry in the past and seeking to create continuities with that. Um, <coughs> so that a lot of these films have both a national dimension and a transnational dimension. And so that the question becomes, well, what's the relationship between them, uh, between these two dimensions? How are they tangled up with each other? Um, and what I'm seeing often, although certainly not always, uh, is the sort of the persistence or even the reinvigoration of the national through the mechanisms of the transnational. Um, which is to say that these two impulses are not necessarily in opposition to each other. They're not necessarily contradictory. Uh, a number of Asian <laughs> film industries have undergone a serious economic revitalization in, in recent years, and I think that one of the big explanations for that um, is that they're increasingly able to make films that are simultaneously national and transnational. They're able to make films that address national concerns, that speak to national issues, uh, but that they're using um, a, a style or a language or money or expertise that comes from outside the nation to do that. Um, so they're, they're much more, the national and the transnational are much more tangled up and intertwined in these films than they are in, in a kind of a conflict with each other. <coughs> okay, so let's turn now to Tech on Kincrete. Has anybody seen this movie before? Ian? That's it. And so you guys, you guys are not as cool as I thought you would be. If you haven't seen that, I'm kind of disappointed. I thought you'd be, oh, you know all about it. All right. Well, that's fine. It isn't that well known here in the U.S. at all. Uh, Sony barely gave it a theatrical release. It showed in two theaters for three days total, and it took in $6,000 at the box office. So if you missed it, you're not alone. Um, it is showing signs of becoming a kind of a, I don't know if a cult film, but or you know how you want to categorize it, but it is becoming a little bit more well-known among academics academics and, um, and fans. Ian did a, a panel on it over at Harvard. NYU just did something the other day. So academics are certainly finding their way to it, and I know the anime fans are as well. Um, so let me give you a quick plot summary. Uh, the film tells the story of two boys, two street urchins named Black and White. Uh, they live in Treasure Town, which is a kind of vibrant and seedy neighborhood within um, <coughs> a fictitious Japanese city, and the narrative revolves around Treasure Town's impending demise at the hands of a, a real estate developer who's come into Treasure Town and wants to uh, build an amusement park there. Uh, black and white want to stop this process, and they take various actions, and the film sort of follows the repercussions of their actions on a whole lot of secondary characters who are mostly gangsters and police. Um, so the question that I want to take up today is how can we see um, the national and the transnational dimensions in the film? Um, how can we see this as a, as a Japanese film? Um, how can we see it as a work of transnational cinema at the same time? <coughs> and excuse me all my coughing. I'm coming off a miserable illness. Um, the film clearly has uh, a strong national dimension to it. 
Uh, although anime is a very hybrid cultural form, it's also a, a kind of a distinct Japanese cultural form. It has a recurring body of conventions um, that scholars like Susan Napier and others have laid out. And Tekon really adheres to a lot of those conventions. The narrative is very open-ended um, and resists closure. Uh, in the, the film ends in a scene set on a beach. Uh, the two boys are on the beach. Is this? Are they really on a beach? Is this fantasy? Uh, it's not clear, and it radically changes the meaning of the film depending on which way you read it, but it's certainly wide open. Um, the moral universe of the film is composed very much of shades of gray. Many of the characters are kind of morally ambiguous. Um, the borders between the good guys and bad guys is not always, uh, is not always clear. Um, transformation is a big part of the film, thematically and visually. Um, the narrative slips back and forth quite easily between fantasy and reality. The styles of animation change quite radically at certain points. The physical city changes, undergoes a transformation. Um, Black, one of our main characters, turns into a demonic creature at a certain point and then slips back out of it. So transformation, <coughs> a common theme of anime we can really see in the film. Um, in terms of mode of production, the film is made entirely within the Japanese anime industry, um, financed and produced within the industry, and it was made in the standard, very labor-intensive, handcrafted way. Um, and aesthetically, the film is quite committed to the traditional hand-drawn style of animation that anime is very well known for. The animators created over a thousand images for the film, and many of them are really quite astounding in their detail and in their visual beauty. So I want to show you a clip just to give you a sense of that kind of, the kind of animation, the kind of art that the film has done. And I'm going to do something a little bit odd. I'm actually going to show the end credits. Um, because what they do, what they run behind the credits are a lot of the, of the background images, and it's a way to just to sort of look at those images. So we'll have a tricky little thing of looking past the credits, and then I'll say something about the credits as well. So let's see. <coughs> Can I dim the lights a little bit? You don't have to turn them all the way off, but just a little bit. Oh, I guess I will <coughs> Yeah, I think that's fine. So I think just what I want to just emphasize here is is the kind of the the, the visual density of these of these paintings. Um, the just striking beauty of them. I think they have a real painterly quality to them. They're just they're simply gorgeous as images. Um, and a lot of anime has this kind of visual density and has this beauty. And I think that Tekon really pushes that farther uh, than a lot of other films do in the kind of detail, just in the in the signage, in the architectural detail. Um, and also, if you look at the, the credits as they run past, you can also get a sense of the labor-intensive production process with all the animators that are listed and all the animators who work to create these images, to draw them, to paint them, um, to really to make them move. Um, <coughs> Arias said at one point um, that uh, during the production process, they, they got behind in the production and they had to outsource some of the animation to other production houses in Tokyo, and that basically at a certain point, the entire anime industry was working on the film, and that every available painter and drawer and animator was, was, was working on the film because it was so intense. But there's just that, that sort of level of detail of the, the kind of 
the aging of, of the cityscape and the sort of the holes and the, the peeling paint that, uh, that I think is really quite intense. Um, so I think that's that's fine. I mean, it gives you it gives you a sense of um, there you go of that kind of commitment. Um, um, where is it? Uh, so the so the way it adheres to to these kind of established anime conventions is part of its national uh, the film's national dimensions, but also in terms of its market and its audience. The film did play in a couple other countries. It played in France. Um, it played in Hong Kong, uh, but really Japan was its major market and it and its primary audience. So in terms of narrative structure, moral universe, hand drawn aesthetic, mode of production, market, you can say okay this this is a Japanese film. Um, the film was also well received by Japanese critics and reviewers. Um, I haven't looked at those reviews myself, but my understanding is that, that none of them really question the film's Japanese identity. Um, is that right, Ian? Have you looked at them? Yeah, I think they exactly. So it's, they, they didn't say, oh, well, it's sort of an anime film, but not really because this American it was involved in it. There's not, that's not really up into, open to debate. And it won two major awards in Japan, including the Japanese Academy Prize for Best Animated Film. So it has that kind of, from the reception end and the critical end, that sort of uh, that acceptance as a national film. Um, the transnational dimensions of the film, I think, are somewhat more complex and in many ways less visible and less obvious. So I want to trace that dimension through the film by looking at three things. I'm um, looking at the director, looking at the story, and looking at how the film treats urban space. Um, so let's start with the director and connect him up to a potterized notion of global flows. <coughs> when I started working on the film, my first question was, um, okay, what are the global flows that carried this American guy into the Japanese anime industry, which is notoriously closed to foreigners? How did he get in there? Who is this guy, and what's he doing um, in the anime industry? Um, Michael Arias was born in 1966. He was raised in Southern California. Um, and although he doesn't identify himself in ethnic terms, he's actually a third-generation Mexican-American. His father, Ron Arias, is regarded as one of the founders of the Chicano literature movement. Um, uh, the way I've been thinking about him, I've sort of been thinking about two sets of flows that carry him out of the U.S. and into, into Japan. Um, and the first of these is the flow of scholarly knowledge about Japan into the American Academy in the 1980s. Um, Arias has said in interviews that he didn't really have a lot of significant contact with Japanese culture when he was growing up in Southern California. Um, or it didn't, if he did, it didn't make a big impression on him. But when he got to college on the East Coast, he started to study Japanese language. Um, and in doing so, he's part of a major shift in the field of Japanese studies in the U.S. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, Japanese studies existed under the umbrella of kind of area studies as a, as a Cold War academic program. Um, and it was primarily budding Japan specialists who took the Japanese language courses. But in the 80s, this really changed. <coughs> and there was a big increase in demand among college students for classes in, in Japanese language classes. And this was really prompted by Japan's rising stature as a global economic power and also by the increasing presence and visibility of Japanese culture in American popular culture. Um, and this is this sort of the big example of this is James Clavell's novel and miniseries Shogun, um, which, which brought a lot of people in to, to Japan studies. 
Um, so in the 80s, Japan becomes an object of fascination just for mainstream Americans. And uh, Michael Arias is one of those ordinary college kids who, who is attracted to the study of Japan without any intention of ever becoming a Japan expert um, in either an academic or a professional sense. He just thought Japan was cool and he wanted to know more about it. So this is maybe the origins of the sort of the cool Japan is in, in the 80s with that, when that shift in attention um, that it gets from college students. Um, <coughs> so Michael studied Japan. Um, and his ability to speak Japanese would prove essential to gaining entree into the anime industry. Without it, I don't think it would ever have come to pass that he would direct an anime film. Language is one of those barriers that has kept foreigners out of the industry, and so that the ability, the simple ability just to speak the language was a, was a big part of how he got in. Um, the second global flow that I think carried him into the industry uh, was digital technology. After leaving college in the late 1980s, he went to work in Hollywood, uh, just as the modern special effects industry was taking off. And he was a self-taught computer guy. He's kind of small and smart. Um, and to avoid being tortured in high school, he said, well, I became a computer geek, just like everybody else who was small and didn't play sports. Um, so he really, that's, he's a, he's a self-taught computer guy. And he got a job in Hollywood doing motion control photography on films like Total Recall. And he later went on to work with Douglas Trumbull, the special effects master, um, and worked on a, on a theme park ride that was based on um, the movie Back to the Future. Um, when he's in Hollywood in this time, Hollywood, the, the special effects industry, already has a kind of transnational component to it um, in the sense that <coughs> there are... Uh, the people who are involved in making and processing the images um, are often based in different countries with di in different companies, and sometimes work is done in, uh, abroad, and sometimes those people come to the, to, to the U.S. to do it. Um, and some of those companies were Japanese. And because he spoke some Japanese, Arias became the point person for dealing with the Japanese companies um, and the Japanese technicians who were working on these U.S. productions. Um, he was able to use these connections then to get a job in the Japanese effects industry when he moved to Japan in the early 1990s. Um, and a door into the anime industry really, industry really opened up for him um, as digital technologies developed and as Japanese animators began, began incorporating these digital technologies into their hand-drawn mode of production. Um, he got a job with a Canadian, a Canada-based software company as a programmer, and he traveled, spent a lot of time in Japan and other uh, parts of the world modifying the company's software um, so that it would do exactly what the Japanese animators wanted it to do. Um, he eventually designed and patented his own software um, that gave computer graphics the look of hand-drawn animation. So I think that this is kind of an interesting point with him that uh, he developed uh, this kind of digital technology, but it was designed to mask its presence as digital technology and designed to sort of further that particular Japanese aesthetic of, of that hand-drawn aesthetic. Um, his big professional break came when he was hired by Hayao Miyazaki, really the master of the two-dimensional um, animation, who used his software, his shading software, and Princess Mononoke, and then later on Spirited Away as well. <coughs> and I think that this went a long way towards legitimating areas within the anime industry and also legitimating computer graphics more generally within the industry. Um, the key idea here is that Arias is not an animator. 
Um, he doesn't enter the anime industry as an artist. He's not a painter. He doesn't draw. He's a software designer. Uh, and this is very unusual. Um, most anime directors are animators who work their way up through the industry hierarchy, and that's not what he does. That's not how he, he gets there. Um, once digital technologies become absorbed into the industry, um, that is, had been previously based uh, on hand-drawn images, um, it opens up a space for a smart and creative and sort of sensitive software designer um, who can speak Japanese. Um, and that space does not open up for him until that digital technologies are, do get imported into the industry um, and accepted within the industry. Um, so it's really, I think, Arius's participation in these two global flows or their convergence in him, um, the sort of the flow of knowledge about Japan into the American Academy that enables him to learn to speak Japanese, and the flow of digital technologies into the Japanese anime industry that opens up this space for him. He can do both of these things, and that's how he's enabled to become um, a director of a film like Tekon. Um, okay, so if that, that first transnational dimension is these two global flows, the second transnational dimension that I'm looking at in the film is really in its story and themes. Um, <coughs> the story is based on a manga, also called Tekon Kindred, that was created uh, by a man named Taiyo Matsumoto. Um, the manga is about 600 pages long. I brought a copy of it here. It's very fat. You can look at it afterwards if you want. Um, and it was originally published in 33 installments as a, as a weekly serial in the early 1990s. And the, f the manga has a kind of cult status in Japan uh, and is much beloved within the anime industry, so it's quite well known um, among a certain category of people, and, and people really care, feel strongly about it. So Ar um, Arias and screenwriter Anthony Weintraub, who are old friends from college and, and kind of go way back, um, they wanted to stay as faithful to the manga as possible, both because they loved it themselves, but they also knew that it had a big fan base, and they didn't want to piss off the fan base, that that was important to, to sort of to, to, give the, to hold on to that fan base and give them what they wanted. Um, but an, uh, an animated film is a very different medium from a manga, um, and it took a lot of adaptation to transform the manga into a film. The manga um, is very loose and baggy, as you might expect from a, this kind of serial publication. There's lots of characters, there's lots of storylines, there's lots of episodes, um, but there isn't a strong single through narrative that, that unifies it all together in a really neat way. And in interviews, both Arias and Weintraub have talked about how uh, Matsumoto, <coughs> they felt, was much more interested in painting a picture of a city. Um, in capturing the mood of a city than he was in telling a story about a city. Um, and they've described the manga as very poetic, um, as very atmospheric, as very moody, as very visual, um, but its appeal is not primarily narrative. So Weintraub's task as the screenwriter was basically to, to, to forge or impose or extract, whatever kind of a verb you want to use, a fairly traditional three-act narrative structure. Um, onto what the manga offered him out of that material. Um, and so even though the film is very faithful to the manga in a lot of ways, I mean, a lot of the images, a lot of it you can just see, it's, it's been strictly, straightly transposed, there was also a lot of adaptation. There was a lot of reshaping um, that these two Americans had to do. Um, one of their early decisions was to structure the narrative around the urban redevelopment plot um, and the tension between the old neighborhood 
and the new amusement park, <coughs> which is called Kitty Castle. So they pull that thread out of the Mongo. It's definitely there, but they make it central. And Wine Trap is called the redevelopment plot, that, the redevelopment story, the A plot, the primary moving thing that the whole movie rests on. And in fact, he said it was this redevelopment thread that initially attracted both Arias and him to the manga uh, in the first place. Redevelopment is a huge interest of ours, he said. We're both urban guys, and we both have a kind of retro sensibility. We like older things, older parts of town. We have this obsession with industry, the industrial age, built things. How modernization and the love of old things clash, that intrigues us. Um, so I want to show a clip now in which the redevelopment plot is laid out um, in the story. head Yakuza boss, the head gangster. He's the developer. Gentlemen, let us, as they say, cut to the chase. The third district... He's a lower-level Yakuza. Is, I believe it is called Treasure Town District, is, well, quaint at best. It is, my lords, a fecund field, unspoiled land surrounded by the biggest growth areas in the city. And that, as they say, is where we come in. As you can see, since launching the first Kitty Castle project three years ago, we've had nothing but unencumbered profit margins. Yep. You truly have the Midas touch, Monsieur Snake. I don't know how to thank you. Alrighty then, we have a brand new revenue source for everyone, and I love it. I really do. <laughs> Boss. You know that Grapachi Strip Tease Joint is in the 3rd District, don't you? For 50 years, boys in this town have been made men there. <laughs> Why tear it down and replace it with a kid's playground? You're so sentimental, right? It's starting to piss me off. They got more strippers and customers these days, and that'd be funny if it wasn't funny. We can't forget the people. The people who love living in Treasure Town. The people who were born and raised in this town. Right, that is nowhere to talk around our guests, and I'll have none of it, thank you. We've lots to learn from Air Snake, and we will learn, gentlemen. My friends, let us toast a new beginning. <clears throat> Um, 
I think we can read this redevelopment story as a narrative about globalization um, in which the local is threatened by the global. Um, Treasure Town is an intensely local place, as I think you can see in these little snippets. Um, It's a a small-scale, densely uh, urban neighborhood with a lively mix of sort of public and private, small shops, restaurants, public institutions, public parks. It's that kind of um, ideal, uh, dense urban neighborhood. Um, (coughs) It's also designed as a mishmash of kind of parts of older parts of Tokyo and also older parts of other Asian cities. Um, so it's not really, it's not clearly a Japanese city, but there's little bits and pieces of all kinds of cities in it. Um, it's dingy and it's old, uh, but it's also quaint. Uh, there's a Ganesh-topped uh, clock tower. There's a rooftop park with an- that all the play structures are made out of animals. Uh, there's the CD strip club. Um, it's a place of face-to-face social relations where everybody knows everybody else, including the gangsters and the police know each other. There's an old man who looks out for black and white. Um, everyone's on a first-name basis. It's a place of long-time residence. He says people have lived there for 50 years. It's a place of long-standing tradition. Boys have been made men there uh, for a long time at, in the strip club. Um, it's an adult space in a lot of ways, what that strip club suggests, but it's also a place where these two marginal boys have an incredible amount of freedom uh, to inhabit the city and make that city their own in a certain way, to live outside of adult authority, to live outside of those uh, social constraints of, of, of adult authority. Um, and the boys can fly through the air, uh, or sort of, and sort of that's a kind of a visual representation of the kind of freedom that Treasure Town offers them. Um, ultimately, it's, I think, suggested it's a place where they can grow into adulthood, although it may not be a very pretty one, um, but there is that potential there. Um, and it's also an industrial space, importantly. Uh, black and white live in an abandoned car under a highway overpass. Um, there seems to be an electrical plant on one side of them and a factory belching smoke on the other side of the, of the river across the way. Um, so it's not a, some kind of a pristine place. It's very much an industrial space. Um, the developer, Snake, uh, who threatens Treasure Town, is clearly presented as a figure of the global, the corporate, and the capitalist. Um, he's a foreigner of unspecified origins, which here in the English version, he's sort of Monsieur Snake, that sort of suggestion that he's, he, that he's foreign in some sense. He speaks some kind of a nonsensical foreign language to his three henchmen, who are actually aliens from another planet. Maybe Snake is an alien also. It's not clear. Um, and interestingly, the, um, the aliens are heavily sinicized in their, their sort of look and their costume. So they're kind of visually identified uh, as, as Chinese. Um, <coughs> Kitty Castle, the amusement park, is a franchise. It's one of a series. Uh, and it creates a kind of homogenized space, a, a, a gated, sanitized, cleaned up, brightly lit version of Treasure Town. It's this kind of a, a sort of a, a simulacrum of, of Treasure Town, as it were, um, in which the sort of the urban thrills of Treasure Town have been rendered safe. Um, and, and also um, the fiction of perpetual childhood can be maintained for a price. Everything can be done for a price. So these face-to-face social relations have been replaced with commoditized relations, market relations. Um, And the original inhabitants of Treasure Town are excluded, uh, black and white, because they don't have the money. Um, But there's repeated scenes of the Treasure Town people sort of looking through fences um, as it's being constructed. And they're clearly on the outside of that, that process. It's not a space in which they're going to be allowed in. 
Um, in telling the story, the film really grapples with, I think, one of the central concerns of globalization, which is the loss of cultural distinctness, or the, the fears of the loss of cultural distinctness, of unique local environments and unique local ways of life um, at the hands of a distant foreign corporation, which comes in and kind of wipes that out. Um, one of the things that's interesting about the film is you're sort of tempted to read it, oh, this is one of those films about the transition from tradition to modernity. Um, and the film, in many ways, is not, it's very slippery, and it doesn't invite those easy readings, um, because it's hard to see Treasure Town as traditional in any kind of conventional way, and I think it's actually more interested in thinking about that transition from modernity to post-modernity um, in some ways. Um, that process by which an industrial urban order is superseded by a post-industrial um, uh, consumer-oriented order um, that's organized, in which the city is organized around the production and sale of experiences and entertainment. Um, the decision to make redevelopment so central to the narrative, I think, was rooted in both Arias's and Weintraub's own experiences as Americans. Um, <clears throat> in different ways. Tekon has its origins in Arias's experience of, of Tokyo um, when he was there as a, as a familiar, both a familiar and a foreign urban space. He discovered the manga when he was in Japan. He was visiting a friend, um, and he spent a lot of time hanging around with a friend in his apartment and on his balcony looking down at the city below. Um, and here's how he describes his experience. It was probably 1995, right around the time of the sarin gas attacks and the Kobe earthquake. There were these black helicopters buzzing around, and you could turn on the TV and see people getting stabbed in real time. It was a really weird time to be in Japan. Also, around the same time, one of my favorite places in Tokyo turned into this construction site overnight. It was this old ivy-covered apartment building in Daikanyama that had been developed in post-war Japan, but had since become this beautiful and idyllic sort of place with a bathhouse and a dining hall. Eventually, it wound up turning into a Rapanji Hill-style development. While all this was going on, here I was reading this manga about these two kids named Black and White and how they managed to adapt or not adapt to this world that's constantly shifting and changing around them. At first, it's just them and the no local neighborhood gangsters, but then there's this extraterrestrial real estate developer who tries to turn the city into an amusement park, and he's working for yet another higher authority. It was crazy, but it all felt very real. It wasn't such a stretch from what I was feeling at the time, which was, is there any solid ground here? <coughs> I think Arius was drawn to the, to the manga um, and became, in his own words, obsessed with it and obsessed with making a movie about it because it, it spoke to his own experience of Tokyo um, as being both a familiar and a foreign urban space at the same time. Um, it's a place that's rapidly changing right before his eyes, even as he was feeling that parts of it were becoming familiar to him, that parts of it were becoming his own in a certain sense. So just as he's feeling that he can lay some kind of an emotional claim to a certain kind of a neighborhood or even just a certain building, an individual building, those parts of it were disappearing, right, as he wants to make that claim. And he said, seeing a big chunk of my world evolve like that was very influential in the end, influential on, on the film. And at the same time, uh, this was the time when the Om Shinrikyo attacks um, were making the city as a whole feel just incredibly bizarre and incredibly foreign to him. So that was the sort of the larger picture. Screenwriter Anthony Weintraub had similar urban experiences half a world away. <coughs> as a resident of New York, he drew on his own experiences of watching the Upper West Side of Manhattan 
uh, really change and get gentrified, and the Disneyfication of Times Square. Um, both instances in which older, vibrant neighborhoods were getting cleaned up and rebuilt and homogenized, and in the case of, of Times Square, really corporatized and, um, and privatized. His New York experience, uh, I think, influenced how he reshaped the manga into, into a film script, how he decided what to keep, what to let go, what to emphasize, what to downplay, that process of, of reshaping the bits and pieces of the manga. Um, when I focus on Tekon's narrative, I tend to recategorize the film in my own mind. Um, it becomes much more of a city film. It becomes an urban redevelopment film, um, a film about globalization, and it becomes less and less a Japanese anime film in my mind. Um, and I think that this recategorization has some significant implications. Um, for me, it denationalizes the film. It becomes less Japanese. Um, and it becomes a movie about New York. It becomes a movie about Beijing. It becomes a movie about any one of these cities that experiences these processes of redevelopment. Um, and it becomes much less particular to Japan. <coughs> um, the third transnational dimensions of the film, I think, can be found in its visual style, and particularly its treatment of urban space. Um, when I asked Arias in an interview if he thought the film was culturally Japanese, he emphasized how much he saw it as being very different from other anime films. And he described the film's cultural style as totally hybrid, sui generis, he said. Um, both Arias and Weintraub emphasized that their cinematic imaginations, the repertoire of films that they carry in their heads and that they drew on as they adapted uh, the manga into the film, uh, that their imaginations were not bound by the world of anime, they weren't bound uh, by the world of Japanese film at all, um, that their imaginations were much more transnational, their repertoire was much more transnational, um, that they were thinking about films from all over the world. So I want to walk through some of those influences and look at clips from the film where I think you can see those kind of influences. I don't have the clips of the, you know, sort of the other films that they're talking about, but just the, the Tekon ones. Um, Oddly enough, and I never would have thought of this myself, but they were very influenced by Westerns, um, by Sergio Leone films, uh, spaghetti Westerns, and uh, by Once Upon a Time in the West in particular. Both of them talked about that film. Um, and it's funny, Weintraub's characterized Once Upon a Time in the West as perhaps the original transnational film. So maybe it makes sense that, they, that that was sort of in their mind. Um, from Westerns, they both said that they borrowed uh, or were inspired to have a kind of an epic tone and an epic sensibility that they felt wasn't really in the manga. Um, and they described it as a feeling that there's a big tragedy, a big change taking place in Treasure Town, uh, that the city is a big landscape against which the characters' lives are played out. Now, it's obviously not a Western landscape. It's a very different physical landscape. But the sense of a big landscape against which the people are quite small and sometimes insignificant. Um, they also said that they borrowed the feeling um, that the streets are rife with action and tension, that there are no innocent interactions among characters, that anything that happens in the streets takes on a kind of monumental uh, sense of importance. Um, so I want to look at a clip in which um, a younger Yakuza who's gone over to Snake's side, the side of the redeveloper, um, he kills off his former boss, this guy named Rat, who is opposing uh, the redevelopment process. And the two of them are sort of like a father-son pairing. The younger Yakuza had always looked up to the older Yakuza, um, and now he, he comes and kills him.
date. The younger one is uh, girlfriend's about to have a baby. Excellent, Kimbra. In Aries, I think, a Saturn. Very compassionate. Gotta take care of yourself. Gotta take care of yourself with a kid. Especially in this racket. I lost my parents early, so I didn't know a father. No one to take me to ball games. No one to teach me to fish. Poor me, poor me. You knew this was gonna happen, didn't you? Since the day I was born. You know what they say, a birth signals the arrival of death. You can always read me like a book, Mr. Suzuki. Well, you're easy to read. I've always liked that about you. Yes. Yes. Anyway, it's a good day to die. I'm not wearing a vest, so if you could make it anywhere but the face, please. My face is actually the one thing I like. I need you to know you've been like a father to me. The sins of the fathers, Timura. When I decided to join the gang, it was because of you. I have such respect for you. My final tip, be quiet when you whack someone. I talked better than that, didn't I? Yes, sir. Don't leave Prince when he ditched the piece. Yes, sir. And make sure to burn your clothes. Yes, sir. Most important, love your wife and child. Yes. Because all you need is love. <laughs> My favorite scenes in the movie. I, I really like it. Um, I think this, this, the vista here, this, these kind of empty streets with that long vista, um, in which there's a kind of a shootout. Obviously, recalls a western, uh, and that kind of exaggerated, heightened emotional encounter between the two men. Uh, I think you, you find a lot of that in Sergio Leone. We don't quite have that same, um, you know, cutting between the extreme close-up on the eyes. Uh, but there is that sense of a, a kind of emotional intensity there. Um, and, the, and the space and the, the landscape is really important here. It's quite different from the scene in the, in the manga, which has a much smaller, closer-in physical landscape. So that sense of opening up the cityscape is really important. Um, obviously, uh, and this is something that Weintraub talked about as well, big influences of film noir, um, and Arias talked about the Japanese Yakuza film. Um, it's sort of it's an urban street. The, the kind of that light fixture, the kind of gun that's used in the shootout, uh, the sense of fate, of doom, all of that, I think a lot of that comes from film noir. Um, so the film is clearly working with those conventions, but the manga is also working with those conventions as well. It's playing, it's interested in film noir. Um, a second big influence, I think, on, in their, on their imagination, um, also sort of not an obvious one, was post-classical Hollywood 
films of the 70s, um, especially city films, New York City films. Um, both Arias and Weintraub have mentioned Mean Streets, The French Connection, Taking of Pelham 123, Serpico, um, as a big influence on how they thought about the city, and in fact a huge influence on how they came to love movies and that they wanted to work in the film business altogether. So really formative in their imaginations. Um, so I'll show a clip um, where I think you might be able to see a sense of that. <clears throat> And uh, this is white is being chased by one of the aliens. And he's, these are two cops who are going to go and try to help white. That's black. Makes him cry. Reminds him of that story. The end of Grasshopper. He hates it. He says the Grasshopper didn't do anything wrong. So this is their house, their car. Makes him cry. These city films, these 70s films, offered a model of, of realism um, that was really important. And, and Arias identified the sense of realism as, he said, Tekon's baseline aesthetic. And he really contrasted that with um, what he saw as anime's more typical grounding in science fiction and fantasy. Um, so that was a big distinction that he made, that sense of realism. Um, and he was actually kind of dismissive of anime's dominant sensibility and its aesthetic, and he characterized its baseline aesthetic as cartoons for little boys. Um, and he said he wasn't at all interested in making that kind of a movie, um, and that the New York City films offered a model for how to make more of a grown-up movie uh, grounded in a more mature setting, not the setting of, of fantasy or science fiction. 
Um, for Weintraub, 70s urban cinema offered a very specific texture that he wanted to, to capture. He said, we wanted to create a kind of grittiness in the context of an Asian city, fairly modern, but we wanted it to feel gritty on the streets. Um, and I think you can certainly see that in this clip. Um, and also, I think what's really important is that sense of grimness. Like, there are movies no grimmer than those 70s movies about New York City. Um, and the film captures that just kind of, that sort of ugliness, that dreariness. You're wet, you're cold, you're standing around, somebody has just stabbed you. Um, it's not, it's not good, right? And I think that that comes out of, uh, you know, that sort of that French connection uh, feel in particularly. Um, Luckily, the Japanese animation team also loved these 1970s movies about New York City. Um, and so it ended up becoming a kind of a, 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 a shared language, a common set of references that both the visual side of the film of the production team and the narrative side of the production team shared with each other. Um, and I think it's actually no accident that these 70s urban films are also very transnational um, in their own way, that they're very much borrowing the conventions of the European art film, uh, the French New Wave, uh, Italian neorealism, and kind of wrapping them around the structure or framework of a Hollywood genre film. Um, so I think that that's, uh, the films offer kind of model for that as well. Um, and finally, then, the third element uh, within tr the transnational imagination was really live-action cinema in general. Um, and I think this is where you can really see how innovative Tekon is. Um, what makes the film stylistically so distinct from other anime um, is the way that it combines the kind of the, the images of anime, these hand-painted, hand-crafted, detailed, um, often very flat images, with the visual range and sense of immediacy that you can find in live-action cinematography. Um, as much as Arias loved the beauty of anime's images, he felt very constrained by the limited range of cinematography that anime has at its disposal. And I don't even know if we talk about cinematography in anime. It's not really the appropriate word. Um, so that commitment to flatness, he didn't, he didn't want to uh, abide by that. And because he entered the industry as a software designer, as a software engineer, um, he didn't feel as, as constrained by those conventions. He didn't feel as bound by them. Um, and his ambition was to heighten the sense of spatial realism and to be able to bring the viewer more fully into the world of the characters up on screen. And he knew, as a software designer, that he could do that with CGI. Um, that he could create the kind of camera movements that he wanted. So he used lots and lots and lots of CGI in the film. Um, he said in almost every shot, in about 80% of the film, there is some element of, of computer animation. Um, and he said, I wanted to make a real movie, not a cartoon, to do stuff you could only do with cinema and to really push the blend of traditional and digital techniques to its limit. So that was really what he wanted to do, what he aspired to do. Um, and I want to show a, a good instance of this is just the, um, the opening uh, sequence, the opening credits sequence. It's quite brief, but I think it's pretty spectacular. <clears throat>
Um, <coughs> this is a scene, uh, and I think it's no accident that he wanted to start the film with this, where you can really see this blend of traditional and digital animation. Um, and it's created in an interesting way that he first uses a computer graphics program to create a 3D model of this space, of this urban space, um, and then cuts and pastes in all the hand-drawn images um, onto this computer model. So all, all the, the, every bridge, every building, every piece of architectural illustration or adornment, it's all hand-drawn, but it's all been sort of cut and pasted onto this computer, 3D computer graphics program. Um, in this spectacular sweeping aerial camera movement that moves up and down and under and over and around um, in a single take, that's all done through CGI and I think is only, frankly, possible through CGI, um, as is the flight of the crow itself. Um, and throughout the film, you see this balance of sort of this camera sweeping through in these impossible ways through this hand-drawn space. Um, the film uses a range of camera movements that, that Arias said you'd never find, you don't really find, or they're very rare in other anime. Um, long, complex tracking shots, aerial shots, underwater shots. Um, and in a lot of ways, he says this was the most controversial aspect of his direction. Nobody cared that he was an American, but they said, hold on there, we can't do that. We can't have crane shots. We can't have sweeping camera movements like that. Um, and the animation crew, um, some people said, you know, that's unnecessarily Las Vegas which I think is a kind of an interesting thing. It's like, we don't care that you're American, but your camera movements are American. Your idea of space and how to handle space and create a sense of space, not only is it American, it's sort of like cheap and tawdry. It's Las Vegas. Um, and to show his crew what he wanted, he showed them a movie. And what he showed them was uh, a Brazilian movie, Fernando Morelos, A City of God, which if you've seen that, has the most spectacular handheld cinematography, um, also about young people in a city, and the camera is just all over the place. So in order to make his Japanese film about Japanese kids in this Japanese city, this American has to show them a Brazilian film about poor kids in a favela of Rio. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, you can see that transnational uh, influence there. Um, last comment, I know I'm sorry I'm going long. There's one last thing to say just to wrap it up. Um, in describing the film, the look and feel that he wanted for the film, Aria said, I wanted to make it feel like a documentary shot inside a hand-drawn, hand-painted world. Um, and I think that this captures very nicely the simultaneously national and transnational elements of the film. Um, in describing the film's world as hand-painted and hand-drawn, he points to the way that the film very lovingly embraces uh, that dominant aesthetic of Japanese anime, that kind of handcrafted, very detailed uh, visual beauty. Um, but describing it as documentary um, points to the way that he reaches far outside the world of anime to, uh, to create an atmosphere of realism, of urban grittiness, of three-dimensional space, of the illusion of moving through that space. Um, and I think that in a lot of contemporary Asian cinema, commercial Asian cinema, it's precisely this balance of national and transnational that is very common and I think is what's making it um, commercially, uh, why these industries are having a lot of rebound. You see it in Chinese film, Hong Kong film, uh, Thai cinema. Um, people are really trying to figure out how do you balance that national dimension, how do you balance bringing a transnational dimension that helps you to do something. Um, and that uh, and that 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 balance can really be found in just about everywhere through contemporary Asian cinema um, right now. 
Um, there's a lot of pessimism. A lot of people have written about the state of the anime industry. And one of the things I'm curious to think about is, does TechOn offer a model somehow that can help the industry get out of its slump, or is it just this kind of crazy one-off film um, that isn't going to have a long-term impact? And I think that's not something that we can say right away, but you have to see how it plays out. Um, so that's it. Thank you. And I'm happy to take questions if you have any. Or comments? Uh, thank you very much, Tina. Uh, it's, it's, it comes on. Oh, it's just recording. Okay, great. Uh, it, it's very interesting, and I, and I like the way you've drawn out this mix of national and transnational. I guess my question is, when do you think is the national important? Um, because I think you're right that there's something about uh, its movement to MoMA, right, its movement around in film festivals where its nationality is important, right? It's the Japanese film. It's the anime film. Whereas, you know, in Japan, it doesn't mean anything, right? right? <laughs> the Japanese, uh, of course it's Japanese uh, in a sense. And the fact that it has an American director, well, so what? Uh, you know, that's maybe maybe a big deal, maybe not. It, it was sort of part of the marketing of the film. I think that's uh -huh. true, right? And that it's the, some of the music, uh, Plaid, this British group, uh, it being transnational. I mean, in some sense, it being transnational was important in Japan, and it being national was important outside of Japan. Um, and, and I guess, it, it, to me, it, the, this question of the elements of transnational is useful, except that, as you pointed out, the grittiness of 70s American cinema is something that's very familiar to the Japanese animators as well. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not uh, foreign particularly, that they grew up with it, they're familiar with it, it was part of the movies. They all share, mm -hmm. in fact, as part of their heritage. Yeah. Uh, and more so probably than Kabuki or No or woodblock printing, which people point to as making this flatness have mm -hmm. a kind of historical... Uh, authenticity to it. Um, so I guess that's, you know, that's my question is, is the cynical answer is, well, it's just a marketing term, right? You know, it's just the way that we market these things in festivals and, uh, and, and to uh, possible distributors. It seems to me there's probably something more to it than that. Uh, but I'm curious when the national matters and, and when the transnational matters. And it seems to me that the answer maybe has to have something to do with audience as well as the elements, mm -hmm. right, or the context of performance in addition to the elements. And, and that's the part I always have trouble figuring yeah. out how to talk about. But I'm, so I'm wondering yeah, if you have any ideas. You know, I don't have an answer to that question, frankly. Um, that's one of the things that, it, that it's sort of still, you know, unclear to me, among the many things about this film that are frankly still unclear to me. Because um, part of it is what I don't have, I can't say with confidence, is to what extent, how different is this film from other Japanese anime films? And I think that that's part of it, um, is how, how different is it? Um, and part of it, I mean, part of this project in a lot of ways is to say, the question comes up often, well, is this new, this sort of transnational dimension? And part of what I want to say is, well, no. Um, it's always been transnational. I mean, anime has always has this long history of borrowing, but frankly, so does everybody else. Um, and we haven't thought about it that much. I think that that model of national cinema has prevented us from seeing the extent to which films really have always been transnational. I think it's increasing now. I think it's much more prominent than it was, but, um, but it's not really new. Um, so in terms of, I, you know, I can't answer that question of when is the national important. I, I, don't, um, I don't know. I don't know the answer. You can, maybe we can talk about that some more. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. 
Yeah, I mean, part of, part of a way to answer that strikes me as being frame of reference. I mean, just finished a European project that deals with this. And within the nation, the national is invisible. Yeah. You're looking at some other element. And from outside the nation, the nation is emphatically visible. So, so part of it, I, I, I agree, with, I think, with what Ian was getting to. It really is frame of reference and where the audience is. And certainly with Japanese cinema, when you think of Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven, or when you think of the noir's penetrating influence from the sort of the 50s on post-war Japanese cinema where it's pretty, pretty strongly yeah. present. I mean, this is a cinema that strikes me as being one of the the cinema tradition, not anime so much, but the cinema tradition is being profoundly in dialogue with with Hollywood, especially more than, say, European or yeah. Europe through Hollywood and mm-hmm. back. So, so, yeah, indeed, you're right. I mean, it really strikes me as a deep... So it's yeah. not a question, but... Well, I think that, you know, the question of the national does become uh, important, and I think I, I can answer this in a lot in reference to other film industries rather than Japan and anime. Um, I think the national is crucial and highly visible in, some, in, in, you know, Korean film, right, where it's very clearly grappling with national questions of relationships with North Korea, relationships with the U.S., uh, kind of social critique and very explicitly grappling with these national issues. So I think it's not always invisible. And I think that that is really important. I think that you can see it also in, you know, the Chinese film officials really talk about that a lot. It's like, well, we need to think about our national culture. We need to make movies that express, and then we can export our national culture. Um, I was just teaching a little bit about Thai cinema and that sense of... Uh, of making films that are very consciously continuing and reaching back to older national film traditions or that, uh, you know, tell national folk tales. So I think in a lot of ways the national is visible in, you know, in these films in their own countries. Um, and it's part of that appeal because people get sick of watching Hollywood, right? We don't always want to watch Spider-Man 1 and then 2 and then 3 and then 4 that give us, give us our folk tale, you know, give us our own history. Um, so I think the national can be very important in w- within these countries, within their own markets. Well, I'm thinking about two films that I saw over the last couple of weeks, one Australia, the other Milk. <clears throat> but, you know, Australia, Baz Luhrmann is probably a filmmaker who we would say embodies the transnational <laughs> at a very deep level across every film that he's done until Australia, mm-hmm. which whose very title tells us is involved yeah. in a process of nation building and constructing a myth about the nature of Australia. Yeah. And it's a throwback to 50s sprawling epic dramas, you know, most notably The Sundowners, which is an American attempt yeah. to capture the nation building yeah. of Australia. And We're- I think that that is really one of the things that I find so fascinating is the movement of, of filmmakers, um, f- whatever film industry they start in, um, coming to Hollywood, learning from Hollywood, and then going back and taking those lessons and saying, I'm now going to go reinvigorate my home industry. Um, you, John Woo is a perfect example of this. Um, you know, big deal in Hong Kong, comes to Hollywood, works here, makes a whole bunch of big-budget crappy movies, but learns how to handle a really big budget, and then goes back not to Hong Kong, because Hong Kong cinema and the industry has been totally absorbed into the Chinese industry, but goes to China to make the most expensive Chinese movie ever made that grapples with, you know, a well-known Chinese story, um, and is the most expensive Chinese film ever made, 
And of course, it's a it's a transnational, it's a regional co-production among various play, players in in Asia. And who else are they going to give eighty million dollars to? The guy who's been in Hollywood and knows how to handle eighty million dollars, because there's not anybody in Asia who's handled that kind of a budget. So sort of, and it, what you say about Baz Luhrmann is sort of the same thing that you come from where you are, uh, you come into Hollywood, you learn Hollywood's lessons, and then you say, I'm going to go, you know, revitalize my home industry or, or that that other cinema. Um, with what I've learned from Hollywood, and I think that's a dynamic you see a lot. Um, so the other, fl the flip side of it, Milk, is a film that seems to me is very much about promoting an alternative construction of America for an American audience. Uh, we could argue is the first film of the Obama era of American cinema, and harkens back to Capra, harkens back to any number of films about American politicians. But it's not the America we've been used to any more than Obama's rhetoric about America was recognized by mm -hmm. McCain generation as mm -hmm. reflecting their vision. Mm -hmm. So this seems to be America reinventing itself very self-consciously. And I think that one of the things that is interesting in Hollywood is sort of this split between movies made for the rest of the world and movies made for America. And that split is becoming kind of clearer and clearer. Um, it's interesting to see, is a film like Milk going to export? Uh, my suspicion is probably not as well. It'll be one of those films that probably earns more money in the U.S. than it does abroad. All the big budget tent poles all earn more money abroad because that's their primary audience, right? They're not made for Americans anymore. But then these smaller films that demand a kind of a really culturally specific American knowledge, those are these sort of smaller budget films. Those are made for us. All those Spider-Mans and Pirates of the Caribbean and everything else, that's made for the world. You know, we're part of that audience, but it's not, we're not very important to it. We're not central to it anymore. Um, so I always think of uh, Sideways as another one of those movies that is, is sort of, that's an American movie. And it's very interesting to compare which movies, who earns more abroad, which movie earns more abroad, which movie earns more at home. It's, it's quite instructive. So um, we've been having a lot of chatter on the back channel as we've been going through this presentation. So I thought I'd jump in and chatter on the back channel. Intro wow, introduce so cool. a much wider so discourse that, that will yes. emerge. You guys I think, are as seriously we taking notes on what I'm saying. You're all emailing. We're, each other? we're talking to each other and developing questions wow. and things like that. Um, cool. But I guess just to find a point of entry into all of. <clears throat> what we've been talking about. I'm kind of curious, you've mentioned a number of times um, that these are sort of elements or concepts within this transnational imagination. And to sort of help orient how to think about, I'm kind of curious as to whose transnational imagination this is and how, like, who's constructing it and who is it being constructed for? And I guess also, how is it positioned vis-a-vis -vis this or very historically situated modernities that it is drawing from and filtering through one another. I mean, in the case of Tekon, it's really talking about very specifically about the director and the screenwriter. I mean, that's who I'm thinking of because, uh, you know, I know them, I've interviewed them. Um, so, you know, whether you, I'd come up with a different idea if I were interviewing the Japanese animators, I think would be interesting, and I'm hopefully I'm going to be able to do that. Um, <clears throat> and in terms of the, I don't know, the, the historically specific modernities, um, you know, I think part of it is, Arias has talked about uh, that experience of being in Asia and being sort of stunned at the pace of change and how these cities 
are in constant motion, much faster than even in New York, that things are torn down and rebuilt and torn down and rebuilt. So I think his sense of being in Asia, in a certain sense, it's like it's, that's the future. It's like everything's faster there. Um, and so I think part of that is that experience of an American. You sort of you always think, oh, we're at the center of the world, and then you go to you know Tokyo or Beijing or someplace else, and you realize, wow, we're like way behind. Um, so I think that's part of what uh, what what his transnational imagination is. But also just you know that idea that I think anybody who loves films has a kind of transnational imagination. Most of us we're all carrying around all kinds of stuff um, in our heads. And, and again, that, that model, we've been trained to sort of think in terms of national cinemas, but that's a very artificial construction, I think. Um, I wanted to follow up with that on a question about um, so the part of the interactions and the relationships between this Western and this Asian modernity, because we... It's talked a lot about in the scholarly literature, and you were talking about it. It seemed to me and to us, some of us on the back channel. Um, well, I'll just represent my own opinion, but it seemed to me that there was this interesting, um, almost like use of Western the, this, these tropes or these topoi of Western modernity to intervene on behalf of an Asian modernity that didn't seem to be able to articulate its crisis, you know what I mean? Um, and I don't want to misrepresent what you're saying, but it there was something interesting there about the way Arias borrowed these, specifically from New York, bringing that into Tokyo. And um, because the sense of Asian modernity is all already having been inflected by um, the Western sort of experiences of Western modernity through like colonialism and war and things like that. And I don't know if you can speak to that. I don't know that I can speak to that either. Um, I don't know that they're interested that they, either Arias or Weintraub, is thinking about that distinction between Asian modernity and Western modernity. Um, I don't think they are in my conversations with them. Um, and I think that that's part of what, that this is a sort of this process of modernity that the film explores and depicts. Um, they both said, oh, it's very universal. Um, you can see it taking place everywhere. So I don't think they're thinking that closely about it. Um, you know, Aries goes around, went around and looked at a lot of different cities in East and Southeast Asia, sort of for images. Um, but I don't think that I, you know, and I don't know that the film is thinking that much about it, about those kind of differences between the one and the other, and the sort of the impact of the West on 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 Asian modernity. I think that's. I think they're not that sophisticated. I think they're not academics. Um, <coughs> so that's a, a sort of sort of an answer. Hi. Um, so, at a, at some point when we were talking about the the credits rolling, you mentioned that everyone <clears throat> was working on you know quite a few numbers of people were working on this film, and at some point I know um, 
you mentioned with Cha Chang's question that you had questions for the Japanese animators and such that you might hope to do in the future. But I'm curious if you have other questions or other hypotheses about the notion of national cinemas or the imaginary thereof as a set of production practices um, as much as finding that in, in the text of the film. And um, if you had any thoughts about what kinds of insight production culture might offer uh, your reading overall. Well, I think production processes, I think that's a lot of, uh, I mean, I think it's a lot of kind of what I said and how the film is made, that it's, you know, nobody else makes movies like this. Nobody. Nobody makes animated films like this. This commitment to the hand-drawn and this incredibly labor-intensiveness, I don't think, uh, Hollywood certainly has given it up a long time ago. Um, I don't know. I don't know that much about other animation industries, but I, d- I highly doubt that it's the same kind of intense, hand-drawn aesthetic. So part of it is, I think, is part of that that commitment to that production process is what was is is sort of striking about the film to me. Um, you know, it's made in one of the uh, sort of one of the cutting-edge production houses, um, Studio Four Degrees C. Um, and wholly within the industry at, at a time when a lot of stuff is outsourced. A lot of Japanese anime is outsourced to, to Korea or the Philippines or other places, and, and I don't think any, I don't think they did outsource any of this outside of Japan. Um, and I think that it's, and again, I'm going to take this in, you know, outside of the Japanese industry. Again, it's in a lot of ways this I have the least background about the Japanese industry and the anime industry. As I said, I'm sort of right in the middle of this. Um, but in thinking about Hollywood's local language productions, for instance, that's a place where you really see um, what when Hollywood comes in, when a studio comes in and does a local language production, how it changes the production process. And it, you know, it says that's what they that's what they bring in. It's like we're going to give you twenty million dollars, and we're going to watch how you spend every penny of it because that's how a studio works. That's what we're going to do. So within this sort of framework of how you make your film. You can have your creativity and do things your way, um, but you're going to get act. You know, we're going to make you write the script. One of the things in Kung Fu Hustle, Stephen Chow, in typical Hong Kong fashion, uh, you know, comes to the Hollywood, the Columbia Picture Studio exec. He's got a one-page, you know, summary, and he's like, "Okay, I'm ready to shoot." And they're like, mm, "No, you're not. You've got several years of script writing ahead of you, in which we we really work through that process of script writing, and then you can shoot." So I think that in in, in different kinds of these transnational collaborations, a lot of it is about changing mode of production, um, in in different kind of ways, and you certainly see that with with these kind of local language productions. In, in a certain sense, what the, the the studio executives talks about is, we we want to marry. Um, your content, your local content, and your local kind of style or aesthetic, um, but we want to put it in that kind of gloss and sheen and Hollywood production values that can only come from spending a certain kind of money and spending it in a certain kind of way. Um, so I think that, um, and I think that that's what a lot of the Asian in, in Asian industries are looking to Hollywood for. I mean, one of the things that I find so amazing is this idea of competing with Hollywood by getting into bed with Hollywood. And that's what you really see a lot. I mean, China, is, I think, is fascinating um, with sort of Hollywood, this big beast breathing heavily at the door and pounding on the door, let us into your market, let us in, let us in. And the way that the Chinese film industry is trying to keep Hollywood out is by saying, okay, come in, um, you know, set up a joint, uh, joint ventures, uh, do co-productions with us, shoot your films here, 
Um, and it's basically a process of knowledge and technology transfer within the film industry, just like they've done with all kinds of other industries, you know, making cars or doing whatever it is. Um, and I don't know that Hollywood is quite aware that that's what the Chinese are doing. I mean, they must be aware. How could they not be aware? But they're basically, by participating in Chinese film production, um, they're making sure that they are not going to get in, in a certain sense. Um, but on the other hand, I don't think the Hollywood studios care as long as they make money. So that something like Kung Fu Hustle um, is a Hong Kong and a China and a, a Hollywood three-way co-production, um, and that uh, they want the Chinese partner so that it can get into the Chinese market as a local Chinese film, so that the Hollywood studio earns much more money if it's a Chinese film than if it's a foreign film. So it's like, well, they don't care as long as they're making money. Um, in China, I don't think they, 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 they care how it happens. Um. I have more of a technical question. Um, do you know if the script was written in English or Japanese and, like, the process of translation? Yeah. And because I had heard something similar had happened with Crouching Tiger. I was wondering about the impact of language on what the film became. The, um, the script was, ba was written in English based on the English and the French translations of the manga, so written in English um, by Weintraub with sort of help from Arias, and then obviously translated back into, um, into Japanese then for, for production. Um, and this is another sort of interesting question, it, which is exactly what sort of um, Crouching Tiger um, does is through that process, James Seamus being Ang Lee's scriptwriting partner, um, uh, of doing, you know, sort of moving back and forth multiple times between languages, opening up all kinds of spaces, certainly with Crouching Tire for cultural misunderstandings that have to be kind of wrinkled out and sort of genre elements and cultural elements that aren't fully understood. Um, I don't know. I haven't heard anything about with Tekon about any kind of snafus that came up out of that translation process. Arius is fluent in Japanese himself, so and since he's involved in it, I don't know whether he did the actual translation, but I think that he could obviously, you know, step in if there were if there were problems. Um, but it's interesting what Weintraub said, and a lot of this. I mean, one of the biggest differences between a lot of East Asian film industries and Hollywood is the role of the script comes up a lot in the script writing process. So I had no idea how this worked in anime, but what Weintraub was saying is that, well, in, when you're going um, in Japan, when they're adapting a manga, the first, the, the process is, is you start at the visual level. You, you have your key images, you pick out your key scenes, you start the storyboarding process, and once that is well underway, then you kind of bring in somebody to put the script together. But the script is not the first step and it is very um, secondary in terms of importance. Obviously, the Hong Kong industry um, has worked the same way, and a lot of other industries have worked the same way. So when, you, when Hollywood comes in, when Americans comes in, one of the things that changes is the script writing process comes to the fore. It's like, well, you have to start with a script. That's what makes Hollywood Hollywood. Uh, is that you start with a story and everything follows from that. Whether than a lot of other industries, it doesn't start with that. It starts with an image. It starts with, um, you know, a kind of spectacle. It starts with your your kung fu fight. It starts with something else. Um, and it's interesting that sort of struggle over the script, um, because of course when uh, Miramax, when it was still under the control of the Weinstein's. Um, 
they were constantly recutting anything and all the Asian films that they bought to come into the U.S. They'd re-edit it. They'd cut out 20 minutes because there were it didn't the the script. The narrative, the pacing, didn't match American conventions, and so they had to kind of recut it to make it fit for the American market. And one of the things that Stephen Chow, whose, whose film um, Shaolin Soccer is one of the famous cases of Miramax just completely, you know, buying a film and mangling it and recutting it and then never releasing it, just a complete train wreck. Um, and so for the next film, Stephen Chow didn't want to work with Miramax. He worked with um, Columbia, Sony. Um, and when they said, we need a really polished script, he said, you know, okay, let's do it at this end rather than having you have to recut the film later. Um, so a sort of willingness. He wanted to get into the, into the U.S. market. He wanted to get into a global market. And he said, okay, I'm working with the studio. I'm going to have access to the world. I'm going to do my process starting with the script, just like Hollywood does. So that is, I think, a kind of a big change that you see. Um, and what, what does it mean to get into bed with Hollywood? What does it mean to work with Hollywood? And it's a new emphasis on the script and the narrative. Any further questions? Okay. Do I get a printout of all this back chatter so I can hear what you guys are saying? <laughs> <coughs> well, thank you so much, Tina. And we have food awaiting us at Senior House, so thank yes. you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. My